From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning. The debt ceiling drama is finally over. So what did Congress and the White House agree to, and what does it mean for you? A decaying super tanker off the coast of Yemen is an environmental ticking time bomb. Now the U.N. is stepping in to prevent a disaster. Plus, South African musician Jonathan Butler's new album explores the fight for racial justice. There are blind spots in white society when it comes to white privilege, racism, segregation. We should have messages that can speak of the times that we're living in. It's Sunday, June 4th. News is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. Eight Republican states and counting have now pulled out of the bipartisan voting partnership known as ERIC, or the Electronic Registration Information Center. ERIC helps many local election officials keep their lists up to date, but NPR's Miles Parks reports a new NPR investigation finds the far right has effectively targeted the organization. Everything started in January 2022, when a far-right website called The Gateway Pundit started writing misleading articles about ERIC. NPR found so-called election integrity community groups then began pressuring officials in their states. The irony, says J. Christian Adams, a conservative elections attorney, is that pulling out of ERIC will actually make voter fraud easier. It's then absolutely impossible to do cross-state checking to see who's voting twice in federal elections. So it's this crazy zeal to get out of ERIC that's going to cause voter fraud to flourish more. NPR found Republican primaries to have played a big role here as officials look to score points with their base. Miles Parks, NPR News, Washington. To India now, where there are calls for the resignation of government ministers and railway officials following Friday night's devastating train crash that left at least 275 people dead. Two separate investigations have been launched, as the BBC's Archana Shuklov reports. Investigators are looking into reports that a signaling error may have led to the crash. It's thought this may have caused the high-speed Koromandal Express to be diverted from its path onto a loop line where it crashed into a station freight train. A second express then collided with the wreckage. More survivors have been giving harrowing accounts of the accident. As the authorities try to understand the cause of the tragedy, work continues to clear the damaged coaches from the scene and to restore train services in the area. Secretary of State Antony Blinken heads to Saudi Arabia this week and aides say he's going with a forward-looking agenda. NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports relations hit a low point last year when Saudi Arabia pushed for oil production cuts at a time of high energy prices. Last year, the Biden administration threatened to recalibrate relations with Saudi Arabia, but a top State Department official, Daniel Benayim, says Secretary Blinken is going there with, as he put it, an affirmative agenda. There's just a tremendous amount of work that we're trying to do. Yemen, Sudan, bilateral work, commercial work, education work, close counterterrorism cooperation, uh, defense and security, uh, regional diplomacy. Secretary Blinken will be visiting both Jeddah and Riyadh and will take part in meetings with the Gulf Cooperation Council and with the global coalition trying to defeat ISIS. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. Further production cuts are said to be on the agenda at a meeting of a major oil producing of a major oil producing countries today. The meeting is being held at OPEC headquarters in Vienna. And from Washington, this is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. A Somerville Elementary School that closed Friday after a piece of concrete fell from its ceiling 
will remain closed for the remainder of the school year. No one was inside the Winter Hill Community School when concrete fell into a stairwell last week. School and city officials told community members that the school will stay closed while crews inspect the building. The current plan calls for resuming classes this coming Thursday at a temporary off-site location. The owners of a home on Nantucket are filing a multi-million dollar lawsuit against the owners of a neighboring hotel that caught on fire. The fire last year burned down the historic hotel and two other buildings. The homeowners are seeking more than $4.6 million in damages from the owners and operators of the Veranda House Hotel. The suit alleges that the hotel's owners and operators did not install an automatic sprinkler system. The annual Dorchester Day Parade gets underway at 1 o'clock this afternoon. Kelly Walsh-Rubin is president of the Dorchester Day Parade Committee. She says about 80 groups and several special guests will take part in this year's parade. Roisin Dillon is our Little Miss Dorchester. Savannah Washington and Riley Mahoney is our co-young Miss Dorchesters this year. We also have Dorchester has their first transgender mayor of Dorchester this year. We're very happy to have Lily Rose Galore. This is the 117th Dorchester Day Parade. It kicks off at the CVS in Lower Mills and proceeds along Dot Ave to Columbia Road. Boston's weather has set a new record. The Blue Hill Observatory's records show that last month was the sunniest May ever recorded. The month clocked in at nearly 330 bright sunshine hours. It also was the fourth sunniest month ever recorded at Blue Hill, which has been keeping records since 1886. 48 degrees in Boston, not much sun around today. A high surf advisory is in effect through tomorrow evening. Some rain likely today with a high around 50 degrees. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning and thank you for joining us today. President Joe Biden yesterday signed the bill that will raise the U.S. debt limit, avoiding a government default with just a few days to spare. We heard a lot about what the Democrats wanted to keep and what the, and what the Republicans wanted to cut. But in the end, did anyone get what they wanted? NPR national political correspondent Mara Lyason is on the line with us now. Hi, Mara. Hi, Aisha. So it felt like it took the deal forever and a day to hammer out. And it looked like we were just about on the edge of catastrophe. Um, But were we really? I didn't think we were. What's your main takeaway? (laughs) My main takeaway is that the laws of political gravity haven't been overturned completely. If you only have one House of Congress, you have to compromise. And for a while, it looked like the new Trumpist House Republican Party didn't want to compromise or didn't think they had to. Some were willing to default. Some thought that the warnings about how catastrophic a default would be were fake news. But in the end, they had to accept much less than what they wanted because they simply didn't have the votes to pass everything they did want, period. Mm. All right. So while both sides are going to sell this as a win, um, let's look at the winners and losers um, from a political sense, starting with President Biden. How does he come out of this deal? President Biden comes out a winner. 
There was no big cuts to his policies, just some small decreases in domestic spending lasting for just two years, some small changes in the work requirements for people on food stamps. And for Biden, this was another bipartisan deal. That's his brand. He can add this to the list of other bipartisan deals he's gotten, like the infrastructure bill or the gun safety bill or the CHIPS Act, and now the budget deal. He said when he ran in 2020 that he would try to bring back bipartisanship and some kind of comity to Washington. And now he can say, I made Washington work again. You're going to hear a lot of that from him as he runs for re-election. For Biden, the bottom line is that experience and wisdom and patience and restraint and compromise all matter. Uh, How about Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy? How did he fare in this? He's also a winner. He's a little bit of a loser, too. But the bottom line is that he got a narrow majority of his narrow majority to vote yes. He was able to lead his fractious conference much better than a lot of people expected. Uh, whether the far-right deficit hawks and the Freedom Caucus will make his life miserable in the future remains to be seen. They're angry that he didn't hold out for deeper cuts than he finally accepted. But the point is, McCarthy got a deal. He was able to sell it as a victory, even though it was much less than what Republicans wanted. So what about the American public, who the our audience probably cares the most about? Uh, did they emerge from this deal as winners or losers? That's a really good question. The public is winners because there won't be a default, so there won't be massive unemployment and a recession, and they'll continue to get their Social Security checks. But they're also losers because this deal leaves in place one of the most ridiculous institutions in Washington, D.C., the debt ceiling itself. There's this giant contradiction between Congress, which passes bills saying it's going to spend a certain amount of money. Then it refuses to allow the government, the Treasury Department, to borrow money to cover the spending it's already improved. It doesn't make any sense. And that one is on the Democrats because they had a chance when they controlled all three branches of government to get rid of the debt ceiling, which they say they want to do, but they didn't do that. And I guess the other losers might be the small percentage of Americans who actually care about debts and deficits. This deal actually only makes a very tiny dent in the deficit. It doesn't address the biggest drivers of the debt like entitlements, Social Security and Medicare. And, and anyone who loses their aid, their government aid they were getting, would probably be a loser as well in this yes, situation. Certainly. They would lose out. But I, I, in about the uh, 30 seconds we have left, we, we know people on Capitol Hill really care about the de- debt ceiling deal, but how about voters? Does this rank high on their list of concerns? Not at all. This was not a grassroots debate. There was not a populist call to cut the debt. This was an inside Washington fight. And we learned that even Republican voters don't care about the debt or deficit anymore like they used to in the Reagan era. Uh, Donald Trump put an end to that. He didn't care about debt. He famously said, I'm the king of debt. I love debt. And the Republican Party never once made a peep about raising the debt ceiling while Trump was in office, even though the debt and the deficit kept on getting bigger and bigger. That's NPR National Political Correspondent Mara Liason. Thank you, Mara. Thank you. Let's turn from politics to what the debt ceiling deal will actually mean for real people. NPR's Jeff Brady and Jennifer Ludden have been tracking the details for their respective beats, energy and climate change for Jeff, and social safety net programs for Jennifer. Welcome to you both. Hi. Good morning. Let's start with you, Jennifer. One of the most contentious points was tougher work requirements, especially for people who get food assistance. So who's affected by the final deal? 
Right. So it will be the age of people who are subject to work requirements under this program known as SNAP is going to go up from 49 to 54. And we're talking able-bodied adults with no dependents, which, by the way, are a small share of the 42 million people who get food assistance. Uh, but these older adults will now have to spend 20 hours a week working or in job training. And for sure, plenty of people work well past age 54, but critics say, you know, it can be tough when you're talking about low-wage jobs. I spoke with Ed Bolin at the Left-Leaning Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. He says, you know, in fast food or retail, for example, the hours can be unpredictable and older people might have more health problems. Those folks might be unable to do the kind of work they used to do 20 years ago, right? They can't find a job in a warehouse because they're back or they're they're worn out from working, and it's not easy to switch at the age of 52 to a whole different kind of job. Bolin also says there's just really very little evidence that work requirements actually help people get jobs, but studies do find that they lead to more people being cut off from government assistance. Um, now, this debt deal also excludes some people from work requirements, veterans, people who are homeless, and young adults exiting foster care. But Bolin says the trick there is whether states can effectively implement it. So, you know, is there a database of veterans. How is someone going to know if a person used to be in foster care? Um, and finally, these changes are not permanent. They're going to expire in 2030. So what about people who get cash assistance, what used to be called welfare? Uh, there are also changes to press more people in that program to get jobs, right? Yes, absolutely. I do want to point out this is a much smaller program, fewer than 3 million people, and the payments they get are not that big. Um, but the changes here are not as big as first proposed, but they will make it tougher for states to meet this standard they have to meet, which is basically that half of all families in the program are working. Now, the formula for how they do that is complicated, uh, but economist Liz Oltman's Ananat at Barnard College says it is likely some families will be cut off from cash assistance. Um, now, the Congressional Budget Office estimates this is going to save the federal government $5 million, uh, but Ananat says it will throw deeply poor families into crisis. Some of them might lose housing. And in the longer term, she says that is going to cost the government far more. It leads to uh, higher expenditures on criminal justice, higher expenditures on foster care, and lower earnings for children in adulthood, which of course translate to lower tax revenues for the government. Now, there is something she and others love in this debt deal. Um, states are actually going to track how families do after they stop getting cash assistance. And it sets up a pilot program to see if there is some alternative to work requirements, maybe more training or other support for families that might help them succeed more in the long run. So that's something to watch there and see what the results of those studies are. Uh, let's turn now to energy and climate. Jeff, how did approval for the controversial gas pipeline, the Mountain Valley Pipeline, end up in the debt deal? Yeah, this was a surprise, especially to the local and environmental groups who've challenged this in court. Uh, the 300-mile-long pipeline would move natural gas from West Virginia to supply the southeastern U.S., and including this approval got more members of Congress to vote for the debt ceiling limit. For example, all but one of the four members of the West Virginia delegation, including two Republicans, voted for it. Uh, this is going to generate millions of dollars in tax and other revenue for the state. But tucking approval in the debt ceiling bill bypasses the traditional reviews that are already underway. Uh, this will essentially get a rubber stamp now. Sierra Club Executive Director Ben Jealous says 
that sets a bad precedent. It sends a sign to Big Oil, Big Gas that their fat cat lobbyists can make end runs around the entire federal government every time that there's a debt ceiling crisis. Including this pipeline approval in the debt ceiling bill was an unusual move. And groups like the Sierra Club, they're pretty upset with President Biden right now. Uh, This runs counter to U.S. climate goals, likely increasing climate warming emissions instead of decreasing them. I understand that there was a big change to a key environmental law uh, in this debt ceiling deal, too. Sure. That's the National Environmental Policy Act. It's a 50-year-old law that requires federal agencies to consider how new projects will affect the environment. And uh, those changes will allow companies to draft their own environmental reviews under an agency's guidance. They'll also give the executive branch more flexibility in deciding when a review is required. And it sets deadlines. Um, So even the most complicated environmental reviews will have to be finished within two years now. Jeff Brady from NPR's Climate Desk and Jennifer Ludden from the National Desk, thanks so much. Thank you. Mm, Thank you. listening to NPR News. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 818 and coming up in about 10 minutes here on 90.9 WBUR. A decade ago, not that many people paid much attention to the surveillance aspects of smartphones. And then came Edward Snowden. That story and much more ahead on Weekend Edition Sunday. It's 48 degrees in Boston, some rain likely today and a high around 50 degrees. I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. We will turn it into your favorite programs. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BMW. The BMW i4 has a range of up to 301 miles. It's 100% electric and 100% BMW. And Walden Local Meat, supporting local food in our communities by hand-delivering local sustainable meat and seafood right to your door. WaldenLocalMeat.com. I'm Joel Snyder with these headlines. President Biden has signed the bipartisan legislation that suspends the debt ceiling for two years and averts a government default. Biden signed the bill without fanfare yesterday. Oil ministers from the OPEC Plus Alliance, led by Saudi Arabia and Russia, are meeting this weekend at OPEC headquarters in Vienna. They are said to be discussing further production cuts amid flagging oil prices. And in hockey's best-of-seven Stanley Cup final, the Vegas Golden Knights have a one-game lead heading into tomorrow night's Game 2. The Knights beat the Florida Panthers in the series opener last night. Game 2 of the NBA Finals between the Miami Heat and the Denver Nuggets is tonight. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News.
Support for NPR comes from this station and from Hint, maker of fruit-infused water with no sugar or diet sweeteners. Hint's 25 flavors include blackberry, coconut, and blueberry lemon. In stores or at hintwater.com. And from Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. This is NPR. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. It's been described as a ticking time bomb. A decaying oil tanker is moored off the coast of Yemen in the Red Sea. It hasn't been maintained since 2015 due to the country's civil war, and some feared the vessel could explode or break apart, causing an environmental catastrophe. But now a U.N. salvage operation is underway to remove more than a million barrels of oil from the tanker. Doug Weir is research and policy director of the Conflict and Environment Observatory, and he joins us now. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Great to be with you. So tell us more about this tanker. How did it end up in this situation? Like who is in control in that part of the, the country where this tanker is? Yeah, so this tanker is a floating offshore oil terminal, essentially. So it's been moored in place since 1987. The tanker itself was uh, yeah, made the same year that I was born, I think. So it's like 47 years old. And it was connected to a pipeline which brought in oil from inland in Yemen. And then tankers would come up alongside and export it and it would go off overseas. So it's not very far offshore. It's like nine kilometres offshore, uh, about six miles the land is under control of the Houthi rebels, but the sea and the coast was under control of the Saudi naval forces. One of the key issues with these tankers, if you imagine you have these huge tanks of oil, and when they're warm, they let off explosive gases. And one of the things which tankers do, they pump inert gases into these chambers to keep these explosive gases down. And because no diesel fuel had been getting to the tanker, these pumps hadn't been running. And so there's a lot of concern that these explosive gases would have built up in addition to, you know, just day-to-day corrosion. If there had been an oil spill, how devastating would that have been? Yeah, I mean, it's potentially catastrophic, right? This is um, about four times more than the Exxon Valdez, uh, which sank off Alaska, contained. There was a lot of modelling done to try and figure out where a spill would go, and it could potentially affect 900 kilometres of the Yemeni coastline. So this is going to affect fisheries. It would block the port of Hodaido, which is where all this humanitarian aid gets into Yemen desalination plants on the Saudi coast. So for all the literal Red Sea countries, this is going to be potentially problematic. And even just nearby, there's a marine protected area. There are coral reefs, there are mangroves. So this is potentially a huge problem. There'd be contamination of aquifers, huge knock on effects on fisheries and livelihoods. It's this yeah, environmental and humanitarian catastrophe, potentially. And now the UN is getting access to the tanker. So, so what changed to allow this to happen? Well, it has been an extremely complex situation politically. Um, essentially, the UN couldn't go in and do anything without the say-so of the Houthis. And that say-so has taken a huge amount of time. This issue has been discussed in the UN Security Council on an almost monthly basis for a number of years now. The fate of the vessel and access to it became a kind of bargaining chip in the conflict between the, on the peace agreement. Uh, and so it's not just been a simple technical job. It's become this quite politicised situation. In addition to where does the money come from, who is responsible for the salvage operation, which uh, at the moment is still $30 million short and it's you know, over 100 and 
30 million that they're already spending. And so what do we expect to happen over the coming days? Yeah, so the salvage team, uh, Dutch salvage team, in the last couple of days, they've been getting on board. They've been checking for hazardous and toxic gases to making sure it's safe for them to get on board and to get alongside. They're going to be checking the safety of the fuel tanks and essentially making the vessel as safe as they can for this other tanker, which is currently in Djibouti, which is going to come up alongside uh, during the next couple of weeks. And then they'll start pumping the oil from there onto this uh, replacement vessel. After that, they need to clean out the oil tanks, which have got uh, a lot of scars on the bottom and up the sides and things. I know that you said that the UN is bringing a whole new tanker to take this um, oil from the old tanker, and that new tanker is going to stay in place. Is there a plan to maintain that tanker so you know you don't end up in this position again? That's a really good question. I think at the moment the sort of future trajectory of this vessel, which is the called the Nautica, uh, which is the replacement, um, yeah, will depend very much on the trajectory of the conflict and the current peace deal uh, in Yemen. So I'm assuming it will be under the management of the state oil company, and hopefully at this point it will be able to be uh, fueled on a regular basis to ensure that it can be set, kept in a safe condition. That's Doug Weir from the Conflict and Environment Observatory. Thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. The life and death of a Rhode Island woman has become a rallying cry for bail reform. From Rhode Island NPR station, The Public's Radio, Olivia Eberts reports that one out of every 73 American adults is on probation, the effects of which can be devastating. Carol Pona had a tough life. When she was a teenager in the 1970s, her mother was killed in a house fire. Her father was shot to death by the police. She started experiencing mood disorders and psychosis. When she had kids of her own, she had a hard time caring for them. But her daughter Tiqua says her mom still checked up on her. My mom was like in the streets doing Carol, but Carol would always make sure we were taken care of. She was always there as a mother. No matter what we needed, we always had. Despite Carol's difficult past, her granddaughter Latiqua says she was a super sweet person. She just basically gave everybody their flowers, like, make you feel good about yourself. Because life is hard. Everybody faces different challenges. And sometimes you need a certain person to tell you, oh, I love you, or, you know, everything's going to be all right. And she was that. But because Carol's mental health issues could make her behavior erratic, she sometimes wound up in jail. And because she was on probation, the judge would hold her without bail. In Rhode Island and in some other states, judges get to decide whether probation violators like Carol are released on bail. Former public defender John Karwashin says his clients were held without bail about nine times out of ten. It's just like a really bad snowball effect. They get pulled off the street, they go to jail, they may lose a job, they may lose some housing. Um, then they come back on the street, they need to figure all that stuff out. So now they're in a worse position than they were when, you know, everything began. Stories like these are common in Rhode Island. According to federal data, the state has the third highest rate of people on probation. Just Georgia and Ohio rank higher. Like Rhode Island, those states also allow judges to deny bail to probation violators. That had disastrous consequences for Carol Pona. She was arrested for stealing $202 in January and held without bail. 
As soon as I met Carol, she was always mentioning that she thought she had cancer, that she was in a lot of pain. Rachel Burgos was incarcerated alongside Carol starting in February. She was always complaining to the COs, asking them if she could get seen by a nurse all the time. By the end of the time that I got out, she would sit in the recreational room crying, like crying, like real tears and begging them to give her attention, medical attention. Carol's granddaughter, Latiqua, says she was calling her constantly to describe her excruciating pain. They wasn't giving her the proper treatment that she deserved, and that's the wrong thing to do to somebody. She's human. We're all human. Nobody deserves to be treated that way because they're under the state's care. I couldn't verify this story with the Rhode Island Department of Corrections. They didn't want to be interviewed and refused to respond to questions over email. But three other inmates who served alongside Carol backed up the fact that she was asking for outside medical attention daily for more than a month before being brought to the hospital in mid-March. Soon after she was admitted, her doctor told the court she'd be put in hospice care, and the judge decided to give her bail. But Tiqua says by then it was too late. She was released at, um, I want to say like around 11.30ish. And she died at 5'10". It's not certain Carol would have lived if she had been out of the facility. Her death certificate lists liver cancer as the primary cause of death. But her family says if she had been out on bail, she could have sought care of her own volition. Or at the very least, she could have spent her remaining time with her loved ones. I can't save my mom. My mom's not here anymore. But I want to save others. That's why Tiquapona says she's fighting for the Rhode Island State Legislature to require judges to set reasonable bail for probation violators like her mother. For NPR News, I'm Olivia Eberts in Providence. In the early 2010s, we were still exploring the technological wonders of our cell phones and other connected tech devices. But few were thinking about how governments and businesses could monitor us on these devices. Then 10 years ago this week, this happened. After a steady drip drip of leaks to the media about the secret surveillance programs run by the National Security Agency, the Guardian newspapers revealed the name of their source. My name is Ed Snowden. I'm uh, 29 years old. I work as an infrastructure analyst for NSA. NPR's Greg Myrie has the story of what has and hasn't changed since Snowden's revelations. Edward Snowden's family traces its role in national security to relatives who fought in the Revolutionary War. Snowden assumed he'd be engaged in similar work as well. But as a contractor for the National Security Agency, working at an underground facility in Hawaii, he witnessed the mass collection of electronic data on American citizens, and he thought it was wrong. Here's what he told NPR in 2019. We had stopped watching uh, specific terrorists. And we had started watching everyone just in case they became a terrorist. And this was not something that affected uh, just people far away in places like Indonesia. This is affecting Americans. Snowden copied files of the NSA's top secret surveillance program and fled, initially to Hong Kong, where he shared the information with several Western journalists. One was Glenn Greenwald speaking here to NPR in 2013. Because he feels like he did the right thing, he doesn't want to hide and shame or, or try and evade public detection. He wants there to be a debate triggered around the policies that are very consequential and yet very secret, or at least were secret until he helped begin to expose them. 
However, many in the national security community, then and now, regard Snowden as a traitor. Most all say he should return to the U.S. and face the criminal charges against him. Keith Alexander was the NSA director when Snowden leaked the files. He's speaking here to ABC shortly after the breach. It's clearly an individual who's betrayed the trust and confidence we had in him. This is an individual who is not acting, in my opinion, with noble intent. What Snowden has revealed has caused irreversible and significant damage to our country and to our allies. When Snowden felt he was about to be detained in Hong Kong, he flew to Russia. His final destination was Ecuador, but the U.S. government canceled his passport and charged him with violating the Espionage Act. He's been in Russia ever since and received citizenship there last year. Still, Snowden's actions provoked a fierce debate over government surveillance, personal privacy, and the power and perils of technology. In the years that have passed, we have seen the laws changed. We have seen the programs change. In 2015, Congress rewrote the law that allowed the NSA to scoop up everyone's records. The USA Freedom Act now prohibits the bulk collection of phone records of American citizens. Here's President Barack Obama shortly before he signed it into law. The act also includes other changes to our surveillance laws, including more transparency, to help build confidence among the American people that your privacy and civil liberties are being protected. There's been another big shift as well. Ordinary citizens now know how governments and tech companies like Facebook, Amazon, and Google collect personal data. This, in turn, has led to a much wider use of encryption. Snowden says 2016 marked the first year that a majority of Internet traffic was encrypted, a trend that continues. There's no sign Snowden's case will be resolved anytime soon. When he landed in Moscow in 2013, he expected a one-day layover. But in his 2019 autobiography, he wrote, quote, Exile is an endless layover. Snowden's critics often attack him for living in Russia. He says attempts to move to other countries have been thwarted by the U.S. government. It is not my choice to be in Russia. I'm, I'm constantly criticizing the Russian government's policy, uh, the Russian government's human rights record, even the Russian president by name. From his Moscow apartment, Snowden initially gave regular online interviews to news outlets and spoke at technology conferences around the world. He's been much less visible in recent years. He's now married to American Lindsay Mills, and they have two young sons, both born in Russia. Greg Myrie, NPR News. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. Usually Memorial Day weekend marks the beginning of pool season. This year, there's a shortage of lifeguards. So some pools have shortened their hours or aren't opening at all. But as Colorado Public Radio's Matt Bloom reports, some cities are trying something else, training a generation of older swimmers to fill the gap. Craig Robinson was in the middle of his morning swim laps at his local rec center north of Denver a couple months ago when he heard a whistle and saw a guard motioning for him to get out of the pool. We all had to get out and sit on the bench while the one and only lifeguard had to go to the bathroom. There wasn't any coverage. But we get it. You know, this is a problem. 
As Robinson and several other retirees sat on the poolside bench that morning, they formed an idea. Why shouldn't they become lifeguards themselves to fill the shortage? It doesn't have to be teenagers. You know, we can help the community and help ourselves. Thus, at the age of 69, Robinson's new career as a lifeguard was born. This is not Baywatch where we, we're all big and strong. You know, we're like real people. Robinson, a white-haired and partially retired physician's assistant, and the group of retirees gave themselves a nickname, the Immortals, after the Marvel Eternals movie. And it stuck. We're still swimming, despite being old. One of us has a pacemaker and has already had a bypass surgery, but he can do all the swim that's required. Some are retired from sales and customer service. One's even a former minister. They all make standout lifeguards, says Rich Kondo, a swimmer who's just emerging from the lap pool. These people get up at 4.30 in the morning. They have to come here and open the facility at around 4.50. So that, that's a level of commitment uh, and drive to, to want to help the community. States from Florida to Texas have started running TV ads to recruit older age groups as guards, which has helped fill some openings. Kondo, the Denver swimmer, says he feels perfectly safe with the older guards on duty. I have every confidence that uh, these people, irregardless of age, are all capable and qualified to come to my rescue. Uh, God forbid if I have a problem in the water. Just like any guards, the Immortals had to pass a series of physically challenging drills to practice rescuing a human from the water. They also take care of pool maintenance, like rearranging heavy floating lane lines. All right, there's one. For Craig Robinson, it's one of the few downsides to the job. You see how it's pretty easy to get pulled in? quite a bit of drag on these things. Tear the flesh off your hand if you're not careful. The pay isn't bad, 17 bucks an hour, but he only works seven hours a week. And it's worth it to see the community come out and safely enjoy the water, which may otherwise be unavailable. Today, there's a large water aerobics class schedule. Robinson says he's proud to fill a community need and he thinks more retirees should consider it. There are limitations, but everybody has limitations. If you're 30, you have limitations. You have different limitations when you're 60 and 70, but you still have something to offer. You could be a barista, a chef, a landscaper. Just find something that gets you going, Robinson says. He, for one, is happy ending his day with a dip. For NPR News, I'm Matt Bloom. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Tomorrow is the deadline for MBTA officials to submit a revised worker safety plan to federal regulators. If the team misses the deadline and the agency risks being denied right-of-way access, that access is critical to running trains, the Federal Transit Administration rejected the proposal that the T submitted last month and said the new plan must outline worker safety procedures to be implemented within the next two months. In Somerville, students will not return to the Winter Hill Community School for classes this academic year. On Friday, the school closed after it was discovered that a piece of concrete had fallen from the ceiling into a stairwell at a time when nobody was inside the building. 
School and city officials say crews are inspecting the building. The current plan calls for resuming classes this Thursday at a temporary off-site location. It's 48 degrees in Boston. A high surf advisory is in effect. Some rain around today. High about 50 degrees. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Perkins School for the Blind, global leader in education for children with disabilities. Help more of them access education at perkins.org slash changing lives. Ocean State Job Lot, partnering with customers to help animal welfare organizations throughout the Northeast. OceanStateJobLot.com. And Avita at ART. Experience the groundbreaking revival of the Tony Award-winning rock opera, Don't Keep Your Distance, now through July 16th, amrep.org. I'm Tiziana Deering. From news headlines to deeper dives into issues of real consequence, from Morning Edition to All Things Considered, from stories online at wbur.org to conversations on stage at City Space. Everything you get from WBUR depends on a solid foundation of listener support. Help us get to our June fundraiser goal of 700 monthly contributors to keep our journalism strong. No reason to wait. Give at WBUR.org. Support for NPR comes from this station and from StoryWorth. Each week, StoryWorth emails a loved one a question about their life. After a year, they'll publish family memories into a bound book to keep forever. Learn more at StoryWorth.com. From Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, a personalized program that bases rates on safe driving habits at Progressive.com. Not available in California and North Carolina or from all agents. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe and it's time to play the puzzle. Joining us, as always, is Will Shorts. He's puzzle editor of the New York Times and puzzle master of Weekend Edition. Hi, Will. Good morning, Aisha. So, Will, could you please remind us of last week's challenge? Yes, it came from listener Peter Collins of Ann Arbor, Michigan. I said, think of a well-known author, nine letters in the first name, eight letters in the last. I said, change the first letter of the last name and anagram those six letters to spell a word. And then read everything together, the author's first name plus the anagram with a letter change to the last name, and you get a certain professional athlete. Who is it? Well, the author is Charlotte Bronte. Change the B to an H and scramble, you get a Charlotte Hornet. Oh, my gosh. Okay, so I couldn't even really follow the whole, your description of the puzzle. But it doesn't even matter because y'all know y'all stuff. So we received nearly 800 correct answers. And Julia Wheeler of Kansas City, Missouri is our winner. Congratulations and welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm very excited. So how did you figure this one out? Were you just going through authors and just seeing which one could work? Um, I got kind of lucky. I am a big fan of bar trivia. Um, and one time the answer was clearly one of the Bronte sisters, but um, and we guessed incorrectly guessed Charlotte. But another team just wrote Bronte, and they received credit for that. Oh my so goodness! Unfair. And I'm still mad about it. So it was like one of the first things on my mind. <laughs> <laughs> 
So it all came full circle, right? Because you lost out on that one, but here you win big. Exactly. Take that. <laughs> <laughs> and you're what? You're a nurse. Uh huh. Yeah. Okay. Well. Well. Thank you for all of your hard work because nurses do such an incredible job and are so needed. So thank you for that. Thank you. So, uh, all right, Julia. Well, I know if you can be a nurse, and I know if you can do bar trivia, then I know you're ready to play the puzzle. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. <laughs> You are okay. Take it away, Will. All right, Julia and Aisha. When you're done with today's puzzle, I hope you say you tore through it. That's because every answer is a word or name with the accented syllable tore somewhere inside it. For example, if I said like important things from the past, you would say historic. Here we go. Number one, kind of college that selects the U.S. president. Electoral. That's it. 19th century English queen. Victoria. That's it. An opinion piece in a newspaper. Editorial. That's right. A class with one-on-one -on -one instruction. Um, tutorial. That's it. Well known for something bad. Notorious. You got it. A person who gets all bent out of shape. Ooh. And this is literally someone who gets all bent out of shape. Literally, like a, okay. Like, like, uh, like they bend their oh, body oh all God, over. Contortionist? Uh, contortionist, is it? Contortionist, sorry. You got it. Math function signaled by an exclamation point. Factorial. That's it. Blank Guinea, Central African country. Um... Oh, Equatorial. Equatorial, you got it. Administrative capital of South Africa. Oh, um, is it, it's, uh... Oh, uh Pretoria. Pretoria, yeah, you got exactly. it. Exactly. How about the use of force or threats to get money? Extortion. That's right. A large room for a school gathering. Um, auditorium. You got it. Chicken blank. It's a Japanese dish. Um, Yakitori. Yakitori, you got oh it. And your last one is a kind of question that's not meant to have an answer. Okay. <laughs> um, it's it's like I'm trying to think of a good one. A rhetorical. Rhetorical yes. question. Good job. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like, are you ready to play the puzzle? Because you answer it, but it doesn't really matter because we play it anyway. <laughs> but that may not be rhetorical. Don't beat me up. That's what I thought you were telling me, like, the next one is not meant to have an answer. Oh. So I was like, okay. <laughs> I get it. I get it. Well, you did a great job, Julia. How do you feel? Good, good. Yes. Kind of like a little, uh, little brush. Yes. <laughs> and you were so fast. My goodness. Oh, like, you. you got it. So you were excellent. For playing our puzzle today, you'll get a weekend edition lapel pin as well as puzzle books and games. You can read all about it at npr.org slash puzzle. And Julia, what member station do you listen to? KCUR. That's Julia Wheeler of Kansas City, Missouri. Thank you so much for playing the puzzle. Thank you for having me. So, Will, what is next week's challenge? Yes, it comes from listener Chad Graham of Philadelphia. Name a famous singer. Six letters in the first name, four letters in the last. Remove the last letter of the first name and the first letter of the last name. And the result, reading left to right, is a word for some singing. What is it? So again, famous singer, 
remove the last letter of the first name and the first letter of the last name, put the two parts together, read it left to right, and you get a word for some singing. Who's the singer and what's the word? When you have the answer, go to our website, npr.org slash puzzle, and click on the Submit Your Answer link. Remember, just one entry, please. Our deadline for entries this week is Thursday, June 8th at 3 p.m. Eastern. Don't forget to include a phone number where we can reach you. If you're the winner, we'll give you a call. And if you pick up the phone, you'll get to play on the air with the puzzle editor of the New York Times and puzzle master of Weekend Edition, Will Shorts. Thank you, Will. Thank you, Aisha. a lot about concerns over voter fraud in recent years. So you think that states would be sticking with a tool that protects against voter fraud. There's a tried and true government one called ERIC that stands for Electronic Registration Information Center. But in fact, several Republican states have stopped using ERIC. The reason for their decision is rooted in a twisted conspiracy theory and is bound to have consequences for future elections. I'm sure there are going to be ripples that come from this particular move, and I'm not exactly sure what the end will be. Hear that story tomorrow on Morning Edition. Tune in by telling your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. It's not every day that you wake up to a message from Stevie Wonder. I heard his voice say, Jonathan, this is Stevie. I love everything about the song. I love the way you sing it. I love the way you tell the story. And he said, you know, um, I would love to give you a gift. Jonathan Butler, who's been inspired by Wonder for years, was thrilled. The South African musician has just released his 28th album. It's called Ubuntu, and it begins with a tribute to his hero, covering Wonder's 1972 song, Superwoman. But Jonathan Butler joins us now from Los Angeles. Welcome to the show. Oh, I'm so excited to be on your show this morning. Well, well, thank you so much. So, I mean, Stevie Wonder called you up. Like, what was that like to get a message from him? Because this is someone who you've always looked up to. It's, it's very surreal to me still, you know. In South Africa, we didn't grow up with music school. I'm self-taught. And Stevie Wonder, I always dreamt and imagined what it'd be like to actually meet him in person. And so I met Stevie a long time ago. Mm -hmm. Long story short, we kept the conversation going and, and he said, meet me at my studios. And Stevie pulled out one of his harmonicas and he began to play on the record. Oh my gosh. Tell me about growing up in South Africa and, and then how does that come to play on this album? Well, you know, in South Africa, we had vinyl records, you know, and, and a lot of our homes 
never had electricity. So whoever had electricity, we would go there and we'd go listen to the music. If it's a Moikwe Tyner, if it's Herbie, if it's George Benson, if it's Aretha Franklin, Donny Hathaway, Roberta Flack, those are all people that kind of helped us kind of find the strength to write our own music because under the apartheid system, you know, our music was not played on the radio. As I was growing up, I began to realize that, you know, I'm a boy from the Cape Flats in Cape Town, and I have my own vocal sound that I needed to develop. Home from the place you meet your very edge. Your thoughts held together all alone. So beautiful, so beautiful. Ubuntu. It's a school of Zulu philosophy, right? Can, can you talk to me about what that meaning is? And that's the name of your album. To show humanity to your brother is, is what Ubuntu in South Africa meant. I am because you are, you know. I am because we are. It's the humanity towards others that matters, even in the face of apartheid, even in the face of racism, and the wickedness and stuff, the hardships that we've seen. It's really interesting because when Madiba came out of prison, even the prison guards were people that he showed his humanity to, you know. He never, he addressed them like human beings, even though he was incarcerated. You're talking about Nelson Mandela. Yes, I am, just yes, for, yes, 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 yes. And, you know, I, I found my truth in Ubuntu as well, you know, because I live in the United States. And during the uh, a pandemic, the killing of George Floyd, triggered so many different emotions and, and, and different um, feelings and fears that I had growing up, you know. Therefore, songs like Our Voices Matter was actually written and inspired by George Floyd. If we look within, we won't go without in this house. What does that mean? That uh, there are blind spots in white society when it comes to white privilege, uh, racism, segregation, prejudice. We should have messages that can speak of the times that we're living in. And if we can address what's it within us, you know, I mean, what happened to George Floyd? Something happened to all of us. And you can't forget that, like me as a kid growing up poor under apartheid and singing in white clubs and whites only establishments and stuff like that. I think it's a, it's a bigger message. If we look within, we won't go out. It's perhaps a cry. That's why Ubuntu is a movement towards a humanity state of mind where you see yourself in others. You wouldn't want that thing to happen to that person. With the song, I'm trying to send that message that what matters to you matters to me. That's what I'm trying to convey through the song. You know. Do you see any parallels between 
the struggles for racial justice in South Africa and the struggles for racial justice in the United States? Well, to be Black is to be Black, you know. Uh, I'm grateful that I now own a home in my country. Our mothers are still domestic maids, you know, raising their kids, economically not free. Uh, You know, when you call projects, we call townships. A township is where the guys that work in the mines, there's about 12 guys sleeping in one room, you know, uh, and and with just a stove to cook. There are different facets, but I guess uh, we transcend through our spirit, through Ubuntu. We transcend all things through our spirit of entrepreneurship, our internacity to uh, keep going. We are gifted, we are strong, and, um, you know, we are rich in so many, many ways. But uh, I speak for all the children that look like me in South Africa. Album. It's so sonically rich, you know, just gorgeous. Do you feel like ultimately with this album that what you are bringing is a piece of your life in South Africa and bringing that to the world? This record is a, is a big milestone for me because every bit of my uh, desire, my, my ambition, and my love for my country was put on this album and everything that I cried over in my life, you know, uh, as a black artist from South Africa. This record really allowed me to become the person that I've always wanted to be. Jonathan Butler is a South African jazz musician and has a new album out called Ubuntu. Thank you so much for joining us. You're so welcome. Thank you so very much for having me. Great conversation. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. comes from this station and from Linda Mood Bell Learning Centers. Instruction for students to catch up or get ahead. Live online or in-person summer programs for reading, comprehension, and math. lindamoodbell.com slash NPR. And from Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. Thanks for joining 90.9 WBUR on this Sunday morning. It is 48 degrees in Boston, some rain likely today, high around 50. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson. Top ranked in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report, Babson's MBA prepares you to tackle global challenges. Babson.edu slash MBA.
and the Boston Foundation. Knowing it will take all of us to improve lives and strengthen communities, the Boston Foundation partners with leaders, movers, and changemakers to close opportunity gaps, advance equity, and power a better Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. On this week's Wait, Wait, actor and director Regina King explains her lifelong crush on Sam Elliott in the movie Roadhouse. Just something about when he has that rubber band in his mouth and he's pulling his hair back and he's about to whoop them. It, it was just sexy to oh. this little girl. I'm Peter Sagal. It's a delightfully confessional new quiz this week. Join us for an all-star Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me from NPR. Saturday and now Sunday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. I'm senior business reporter Yasmin Amr. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning. We're over a year away from the 2024 election, but the Republican presidential primary is in full swing. Here from the campaign trail in Iowa. We have a very clear sense of that calling now, and uh, we thought Iowa would be the best place to make our intentions known. And a train crash in India killed hundreds. We have the latest. Plus, the selection process for the sororities at the University of Alabama went viral. Now, a new documentary, Bama Rush, follows girls who want to join the secretive organizations. It's Sunday, June 4th. News is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. President Biden has signed the bipartisan legislation that suspends a debt ceiling for two years and averts a government default. Biden signed the bill without fanfare at the White House yesterday. The deal the president worked out with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy reigns in spending, and NPR's Jennifer Ludden says it includes work requirements for some Americans on food assistance. The age of people who are subject to work requirements under this program known as SNAP is going to go up from 49 to 54. And we're talking able-bodied adults with no dependents, which, by the way, are a small share of the 42 million people who get food assistance. Uh, but these older adults will now have to spend 20 hours a week working or in job training. The new law also calls back IRS funding and formally ends the pause on federal student loan payments. China's defense minister is warning other countries to, in his words, mind their own business after a Chinese warship came close to colliding this weekend with a U.S. warship in the Taiwan Strait. NPR's Emily Fang reports. China's Minister Li Shengfu gave a speech in Singapore on Sunday loaded with thinly veiled barbs against the U.S. Li sidestepped when asked about the encounter, as well as a previous close pass a Chinese fighter plane made in front of a U.S. surveillance plane last month. He criticized, quote, some countries of sailing or flying through international space to surveil or provoke China. The two Canadian and American ships were transiting through international waters on Saturday at the same time that U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin was delivering a speech rebuking China for cutting off dialogue between the two militaries. Emily Fang, NPR News, Singapore. China has tightened security in Tiananmen Square in central Beijing and in Hong Kong. Police said in a statement that four people were arrested for seditious intent and four others for breaching public peace near the city's Victoria Park. 
Activists have used the park for years to commemorate the 1989 Tiananmen Square crackdown. Today is the 34th anniversary. Rescue operations ongoing in eastern India following the country's deadliest train crash in more than two decades. Joe Wallen reports from Delhi. At least 275 people died in the disaster. Rescue teams and family members of the missing are searching through the wreckage of three trains that crashed late on Friday evening. The death toll is expected to rise as more bodies are found. At least 100 people are said to be critically injured. The Indian authorities say a signalling failure caused a busy passenger train to wrongly move onto an outside track where it crashed into a stationary freight train. A second oncoming passenger train then collided with the debris. India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi has said those responsible will be punished stringently but his government is facing criticism. India has Asia's busiest railway network but safety standards are poor. There are hundreds of crashes every year. For NPR News, I'm Joe Wallen in Delhi. And you're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. A worker shortage is making it difficult for people with substance use disorder in Massachusetts to get the services they need. That's according to Lyd- Lyd- Lydia Conley, the president of the Association for Behavioral Health Care. Conley says patients without private insurance are affected the most. We've seen 290 beds closed in the last 90 days is a result of we have very low reimbursement rates. The rates um, do not allow us to attract and retain staff, and so we're seeing this direct impact on services. Conley says nearly a quarter of all jobs in the substance use disorder treatment system in Massachusetts remain unfilled. She says the vacancy rate for nurses in the field is close to 50 percent. More than 1,000 people applied in the first day for a Cambridge program that would provide them with direct monthly payments of $500. Cambridge Day reports that that number represents about half of eligible families. The program will give households the money for 18 months starting June 30th. The Rise Up Cambridge program is funded by $22 million of federal COVID-19 recovery funds. It is World Ocean Day. The New England Aquarium is celebrating with a slate of educational offerings. They include an Ask a Scientist booth, a humpback whale exhibit, an art station, and other interactive activities. The festivities kick off at 10 this morning at the Aquarium in Boston. Two Massachusetts schools are holding commencement ceremonies today. Journalist and cancer research advocate Katie Couric will deliver the commencement address at UMass Chan Medical School. The Williams College commencement speaker is Fred Krupp, the president of the Environmental Defense Fund. It's 48 degrees in Boston. A high surf advisory is in effect, and so is a coastal flood advisory. That'll take effect tonight. Today in Boston, rain around highs about 50 degrees. Rain likely tonight and then tomorrow, a chance of showers. Monday's highs in the low 60s. Looking ahead to Tuesday, a chance of showers and thunderstorms and highs reaching the low 70s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR produce programming that meets the highest standards of public service in journalism and cultural expression. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning. The 2024 election campaign is fully underway, and there's no better sign than a busy week in Iowa. 
Republicans vying for the presidential nomination have been in and out of the state. Former President Donald Trump and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis were just there. And Saturday, Iowa Senator Joni Ernst hosted most of the hopefuls at her roast and ride with barbecue and a motorcycle ride. Iowa Public Radio's Clay Masters takes us on the campaign trail. Ron DeSantis' first visit to Iowa as an official candidate started with a trip to church. And I pray that you keep raising up mighty conservative voices. It's a nod to the importance evangelical Christians play in Republican politics here, something the Florida governor hopes to capitalize on. He's seen as Donald Trump's biggest rival in the race for the nomination right now. DeSantis made a reference to the last time he was here and made an unscheduled stop in Des Moines, the same day Trump canceled an outdoor rally there because of a severe weather threat. The weather was so nice that we felt we just had to come back and pay everyone a little bit of a visit. We appreciated that. But DeSantis wasn't done criticizing the former president, shooting back after Trump said he failed in the face of COVID. He's attacking me over some of these disagreements, but I think he's doing it in a way that the voters are going to side with me. I mean, we talked about COVID. Do you want Cuomo or do you want free Florida? If we just decided the caucuses on that, I would be happy uh, with that verdict by, by Iowa voters. He's referencing former New York Governor Andrew Cuomo. As DeSantis made five stops across the state, his staff and supporters greeted rally goers with pamphlets. Would you like to commit to caucus for the governor? Not right now. Not yet? No worries. Thank you for coming. Christine and Frank Fasano came out to see DeSantis in a small town. I'd like to get more details on his platform on how he's going to try to accomplish some of these things. I think Ron's a sharp young man. He'd do a great job. but. I think age is an issue yeah. for me with the president, the ex-president. Hello, everybody. Hello. This is a big crowd. This was supposed to be just a little gathering. There's hundreds and hundreds of That's Trump walking into the Machine Shed restaurant in suburban Des Moines on Thursday. Before greeting supporters, he immediately jabbed back at DeSantis over the Florida governor's comments that a nominee needs to be able to serve two terms. We don't need eight years. We need, we need five months or less. Thank you very much. After so many years of mass scale rallies, Trump is taking things down a notch on this trip with a more intimate slate of events. But the rhetoric is still dialed up. Ladies and gentlemen, the next president of the United States. There's no way I can lose Iowa. Let's see what happens. I don't think so. Uh, we'd have to uh, we'd have to do some really bad things to lose at this point. That's the first stop as he takes a more personal approach to campaigning. He meets privately for lunch with local pastors. Then he hangs out with campaign volunteers. So they said, sir, we can get you in and out quickly, or you could stay for pizza with your friends. I said, I'll stay for pizza with my friends. But in typical Trump style, he continues to push falsehoods about the outcome of the 2020 election. And his trip ends with a televised Fox News town hall. Two days later, the other Republicans running wanted to show Iowans the race is on. The setting? Senator Joni Ernst's Roast and Ride. The fundraiser's proceeds go to a veterans group. It features a motorcycle ride, barbecue, and lots of speeches from politicians. Trump didn't make it, but his former vice president did. Hello, welcome, vice president. It's so good to have you here, Karen. Mike Pence is planning on announcing his bid here next week, which he talked about as he mounted a Harley. We have a very clear sense of that calling now, and uh, we thought I would be the best place to make our intentions known.
Pence was the only one to ride with Senator Ernst to the state fairgrounds. That's where all the speeches and food were served. So I am going to close out because I want to get to the meat of this day. We've got a lot of great folks that are here ready to speak to you. The hundreds of Iowans gathered heard from South Carolina Senator Tim Scott, entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy, former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson. DeSantis was there too. When former UN Ambassador Nikki Haley took the mic, she reminded Iowans that their choice has an outsized impact, so make it carefully. It's going to take a lot of courage. Courage for me to run and courage for every one of you to know, don't complain about what you get in a general if you don't play in this caucus, because it matters. Likely Iowa caucus goers have months to make a decision before they commit. Before that, though, the candidates will take to the national debate stage, or at least the ones who can meet RNC criteria, which may also help Iowans winnow the field. And Clay Masters of Iowa Public Radio joins us now from Des Moines with a little more context. Hey, Clay. Good morning. So you've covered a lot of these big election cycles in Iowa. How's this one compared to the others? Well, these cattle calls like the roast and riot are nothing new. Democrats and Republicans do them. It's a chance for a friendly audience to hear predominantly unknown candidates introduce themselves as they're making up their minds. Now, the first roast and ride was back in 2015 after Senator Ernst was first elected and the Republican making headlines back then was former Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker. Remember mm. that? Remember that guy? So, okay, okay. <laughs> it's a good reminder of how early we are in this process. Uh, we heard from a couple Iowa voters in your story there. What else are they telling you? Well, the people who came to see Trump this week that I spoke to clearly seem to have their minds made up. But I've had a lot of voters at these other gatherings tell me they like Trump's policies, but they're open to a change and there's still a lot of time or they actively want somebody new. And I remember Iowa voters saying they were trying to make up their minds like four years ago when the Democrats were barnstorming the state. And that went up until the very last weeks of campaigning. So Iowans who caucus are very used to this role in the political process, and they're very comfortable listening to every candidate multiple times before uh, publicly committing to them. Iowa Public Radio's Clay Masters, thank you so much. You're welcome. At least 275 people have died and hundreds more are injured after a train crash in the Indian state of Odisha in eastern India on Friday. It seems two passenger trains were derailed when one hit a cargo train. It's one of the worst train crashes in Indian history and the worst in several decades. Sandeep Sahu went to a nearby hospital yesterday and can tell us more. Good morning, Sandeep. Good morning. So what do we know about what happened on Friday? One of the passenger trains, uh, which was uh, coming from the eastern Indian city of Salimar and traveling to Chennai, that hit a stationary uh, goods train at the Bahanagar station in eastern Indian state of Odisha. And once the collision took place, 12 carriages of the train got derailed and uh, landed on an adjacent track where there was another train uh, coming from the opposite direction. And the three carriages of the second train were also derailed in the collision. One of the carriages landed on top of the carriage of another train. So there were three trains involved and it was 
horrible uh, horrible accident that has left at least 275 people dead and you spoke to people in a hospital there about what they saw can you tell us about that i met this woman who was with her family and she had boarded the train just 15 minutes before the crash she was traveling with her uh, husband and two sons and they all were critically injured uh, in the mishap she and her youngest son were admitted in this baleswar hospital and her husband and uh, elder son were shifted to a medical facility in katak city which has uh, better medical facilities and she was very distraught unable to know any thing about the condition of her husband and son so she was very worried she was very uh, critically injured but she was more worried about the fate of her husband and her younger son this morning there were five bodies uh, extricated from the mangled remains of the train that met with an accident and they were lined up in a school building nearby while i was having a look at the bodies the mobile phone inside uh, the pocket of one of the victims started ringing it was obviously someone close to that person who was desperately calling uh, without quite knowing that this person is already dead so that was a very uh, oh. touching scene oh wow but there was some good news from that like were there any ones who were rescued alive yes 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 it was a miracle of sorts even the railway officials and others engaged in the rescue operation they had all assumed that there will be no body alive in the accident site but they were surprised to find one person who had got stuck in the mangled remains he was rescued this morning alive and he was immediately rushed to the hospital that was a surprise because it has now been more than 36 hours after the accident have officials said who is to blame or or how this horrific accident happened a top railway official uh, said today that the preliminary findings of the ongoing inquiry suggest that it was a signaling error which uh, led to the accident but he was not willing to give any more details and he was not very forthcoming about who will responsible but the prime minister of india mr narendra modi who was here yesterday he has said that strict action will be taken against anyone found responsible for this accident that's sandeep sahu and bali sore thank you so much for joining us thank you You're listening to NPR News. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 9:18 and coming up in about a half an hour here on 90.9 WBUR, you'll get the story on the new documentary Bama Rush, a film about four students who hope to join sororities at the University of Alabama. The WBUR app makes it easy to tap and listen wherever the season takes you, at the beach, at the park, on a walk, at your desk. Listen live and catch up on anything you missed. Download the WBUR app today. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Walden Local Meat. 
partnering with local Northeast farmers to hand-deliver 100% grass-fed, pasture-raised meat right to your door, WaldenLocalMeat.com. And Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Well, your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it. And thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. I'm Giles Snyder with these headlines. The debt ceiling bill worked out between President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is now law. The president signed the legislation at the White House this weekend ahead of tomorrow's deadline to avert a default. A federal judge has struck down Tennessee's first-in-the-nation law restricting drag events in the state. The ruling comes as more than a dozen states have considered anti-drag bills in recent months. And the Miami Heat will be looking to even the best-of-seven NBA finals after losing Game 1 to the Denver Nuggets. Game 2 is tonight. In hockey, the Vegas Golden Knights won the Stanley Cup Series opener against the Florida Panthers. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from the Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises, committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive. Nature.org slash solutions. This is NPR. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. For the last 15 months, a large nuclear power station in central Ukraine has been occupied by Russian forces. And this has sparked waves of international panic over the potential for a nuclear accident. NPR's Joanna Kakissis spoke to plant workers who explained why Ukraine's much-anticipated counteroffensive might not work there. Roman Herman says he spent his entire life around nuclear power plants. He grew up near one, Chernobyl. He was 11 years old when a reactor there blew up, causing the worst nuclear accident in history. My father was a security guard there. I remember he came home, immediately put his clothes in the trash, and warned us not to approach it. The next day, the buses came to get us. Their final stop was Enerhodar, the city known as the giver of energy. It's near the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. Working there always seemed like the obvious choice to me. It was also considered so prestigious. Hermann got a job maintaining and repairing the plants in reactor control systems to make sure temperatures remain stable. He grew up obsessed with science and machines, so he loved his job. But then, in March 2022, Russian soldiers arrived. They occupied the plant after a four-hour firefight that burned down the plant's training building. For some reason, I thought we would be spared that the Russians would never attack a nuclear power plant. I didn't believe it until the very end. 
Russian forces kept Hermann and other staff there to keep the plant running. He says he got used to seeing soldiers and armored personnel carriers everywhere. By summer, he noticed the Russian soldiers were already treating the grounds of the plant like a barracks. They sunbathed in their underwear. They barbecued. They slept on the grass. They smoked all the time and threw their cigarettes on the ground. More concerning, he says, was their apparent obliviousness to hazards near the nuclear plant. He says Russian troops parked vehicles with ammunition near the plant's machine room, as well as tankers filled with flammable liquids. Also, they mined the territory around the plant. We were told to only walk around in daylight and strictly on concrete paths. After work, Hermann and other plant staff went home to the city of Anerhodar, which is also occupied by Russian forces. At night, he would hear explosions. And I saw evidence of shelling at work. Ukraine has accused Russia of shelling nearby cities from the plant and also shelling the plant itself. Russia, however, says it's Ukrainian forces attacking the plant. NPR spoke to plant workers who said it felt so dangerous there that they had to escape. Engineer Alexei Melnichuk, who fled last year, says it wasn't just the fear of an accident at the plant. It was also the stress of living in town. The Russian troops attacked people, kidnapped them, stole whatever they wanted. I got sick of going to work with a gun pointed in my face. Russia moved to make Anerhodar and other occupied areas part of Russia. After a sham referendum last fall, they were formally annexed despite international condemnation. Russian authorities started demanding Ukrainian workers sign forms to be paid in rubles, the Russian currency. Hedemann says he told his colleagues not to sign. The Russian Secret Service said I was scaring people. They put a hood over my head and took me away. He says Russian soldiers drove him to a windowless room where they beat him with a bat, broke his ribs, cut him with scissors, and tortured him with forceps. He says he was detained and tortured twice. I realized that if there would be a third time, it would be my last, that I would never get out of there alive. So I started looking for ways to escape. In February, Hermann and his wife left Anerhodar with their dogs Lana and Mila in the back seat. He says they drove through occupied parts of Ukraine, past heavy Russian fortifications along the front line and the ruins of the city of Mariupol. Then they drove north through Russia until they found a safe border crossing to northeastern Ukraine. Now they're in Kyiv. Some other nuclear power plant workers who managed to flee now live in the central city of Zaporizhia, where they often meet at a community center. On a recent morning, they listen to music and weave flowers into wreaths. Natalia Nikolaeva was a lab technician at the plant. Being here makes us feel like home used to be, without the armed man next to you at work. She says the Ukrainian company that operates the plant continues to pay staff who were forced to flee. But workers still at the plant say conditions there are only getting worse. 
зв'язок підтримується, не завжди це Дмитро Орлов, Енерхардар's exiled mayor, says he speaks to them and their families via text and encrypted lines. They tell him the plant is short-staffed and that Russian troops continue to militarize it. The plant is saturated with military equipment. It's a military base. They're using it to blackmail the international community with nuclear threats. British intelligence reports that the Russians have gone so far as to build defensive positions on top of the reactor buildings themselves. Roman Herman, the plant worker, says it will be tough for Ukrainian forces to push out the Russians. The plant is like a human shield, he says, and they can hide behind it. Joanna Kikisis, NPR News, reporting from Kyiv and Zaporizhia. Three years ago, Pulitzer Prize-winning editorial cartoonist Darren Bell was at work on a biography about his grandfather. Then came the summer of 2020 and those massive Black Lives Matter protests against police brutality. Bell had a long talk with his editor about changing the subject of the book entirely and happened to mention something. I'm having to grapple with whether my six-year-old son is old enough for the talk. I wasn't planning on giving it to him for a couple years. The talk, as in the talk black parents give their children about how the world will not be kind to them because of the color of their skin. I mean, you look at your children and, and you see innocence and, and they're precious and, you, and they still believe in magic and they still believe that the world loves them. And you don't want to take any of that from them. But at some point you have to if you want to prepare them for what's to come, if you don't want someone else to take it from them in a, in a much worse way. And I told her, you know, it was ironic that he's the same, he was the same age, six years old, that I was when my mom gave me the talk. And, you know, she replied with, with three words. She just said, that's the book. Darren Bell stopped working on the biography and instead created a graphic novel about his own life called The Talk. Bell, who's also known for his Canderville syndicated comic strip, joined us last week. I asked him about a time in the book when he describes his mom first giving him the talk. I asked for a water gun and she said no, and she she told me why. She said that the world is different for black boys and girls than it is for white ones. And, you know, I might see my white friends running around with water guns, carefree, because when police see them, they just see pure innocence. They see little kids playing. But when they see me, they might see a threat. They might think I'm older than I actually am. You know, I might even get shot. Now, I didn't believe this at all. This made no sense to me. So as soon as I could, I snuck out of the house with with my bright green translucent water gun, shooting random things, imagining that they were stormtroopers and that I was Luke Skywalker escaping from the Death Star. And, you know, I bent down to to load to reload the water gun in a puddle and I heard someone say drop the weapon. He seemed like he was 10,000 feet tall. He was a a grown police officer with his hand near his weapon. And for a split second I thought is he playing with me? But the look on his face told me he wasn't and I was terrified and I just froze. I just knelt down on the ground instinctively and closed my eyes and wished he would go away. 
and he eventually did. But you didn't tell anybody, right? Like you, you didn't tell anybody that this happened to you. Well, I was a, I was ashamed of two things. I was, just, I was ashamed that I hadn't taken my mom seriously, and I was ashamed that I didn't do anything. When I was six, I thought I could have, I could have stood up to him. I could have said, "Hey, it's just a water gun," but I didn't do anything. I just froze. Not every black parent sits their child down and tells them about racism. And and in your case, it was your mother, but your mother's white. Um, and she was the one who gave you the talk and not your black father. Like, what do you make of that or why that was the case? I learned what to make of it in the process of writing this book because, you know, I had to go back in time and try to get in touch with where my father was in life at the time. He had a six-year-old son, just like I had a six-year-old son. And maybe when he looked at me, he saw the same thing I see when I look at my son. And, you know, where I didn't want to take away my child's innocence, I think my father felt the same way. And he also was hoping that I wouldn't have to go through what he went through. Another interesting thing about the book, like you talk about dealing with microaggressions and being followed around stores, but it also seems like earlier in life and kind of like what you talked about, like you didn't want to stand out. And for you at that time, it seemed like it meant not focusing on race. How did you reach that conclusion as a young person? Like, oh, well, I, I'm just not going to make a big deal out of this race stuff. Well, as as a young person, I was I was trying to take my cues from my father. <laughs> he could just simply decide that it didn't bother him and he could just go about his business. And I got that from my dad. But every once in a while, you get a reminder, you get a rude mm -hmm. reminder, a slap in the face telling you, no, no matter how you see yourself, this is how we see you. Can you talk about some of those moments, those reminders? It seems like in college you had a reminder with a professor that made you start thinking differently about how you were gonna approach race. Up until that moment in college, I was young, so I was optimistic and I was giving everyone the benefit of the doubt. And I thought that racism was just a function of ignorance. And I thought that if I worked hard enough and if I accomplished enough, if I, if I spoke well enough and if I got good enough grades, people who were racist would, you know, would realize that they were wrong. But then, you know, I... I found out that that's not the case. Even someone who who watches your progress, who grades your papers, who realizes that you're actually intelligent and you're, you know, ambitious, even that person might single you out and try to sabotage you. And I realized I should stop worrying about what the majority culture thinks of me. You know, I I should just live my life how I how I want to say what I want to talk about racism if I want to without fear of of them saying that I'm an angry black man. You know, if you could go back to yourself as that six year old boy and like give him a talk after that life altering encounter with the police officer, what would you say? I I would tell him don't pretend it didn't happen. And don't fault yourself for not stopping it because it was not in your power. You didn't do anything wrong and nothing you did provoked him. I, I think just knowing that would have 
you know, w- would have changed everything for me. That's Darren Bell, Pulitzer Prize winner and author of a graphic novel, The Talk. Thank you so much for coming on the program. It was great. Thanks for having me. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. The love triangle. It's the explosive shape at the heart of countless romantic comedies and dramas. But as NPR's Alexi Horowitz-Ghazi reports, a new film called Past Lives offers a more subtle take on the lives we choose and the ones that get away. Past Lives opens in a moody, low-lit New York City bar. There, we see a woman sitting between two men, wrapped in quiet conversation. As the camera slowly zooms in, we hear others in the room puzzling over how exactly this odd throuple might be connected. Who do you think they are to each other? Mm, I don't know. Yeah, this is a hard one. As the film's Korean-Canadian writer and director Celine Song explains, the inspiration for that scene comes from an experience she had a few years ago, when she found herself sitting at a bar in the East Village, interpreting between her American husband and her childhood sweetheart visiting from South Korea. Something extraordinary was happening in that bar that uh, really stuck with me. And I think that that really was the start of why I wanted to make this movie. Song says she felt something strange and magical seeing her past and present lives entwined together that night. And as she looked around the bar, she noticed other patrons glancing their direction. Like, who the hell are these people to each other? It just made me feel like, you know, like, oh man, what if I could tell you? Song's debut unfolds in three acts, following a fictionalized version of herself named Nora Moon. Like Song, Nora emigrated from Korea to Canada at a young age. And like Song, she became a successful New York playwright in her 20s. The film's first act is set in Seoul, where Nora and her childhood crush, Hae Song, part ways. The second, 12 years later, when they reconnect over the internet. And finally, 12 years after that, when Hae Song visits New York, where Nora now lives with her husband. And while that might sound like the setup for a classically chaotic rom-com, Song says that she wanted her characters to show what love can look like when all parties put each other's feelings ahead of their own. I love rom-coms and I love romantic dramas. I love it all. But I think often romantic drama is driven by grown-ups behaving like little children with each other. Greta Lee, the Korean-American actress who plays Nora, says she was entranced with the script for Past Lives from the moment she first saw it. I opened up the PDF and read it in one sitting and just sobbed. I'm not sure if you've ever had the experience of trying to read while crying. (laughs) It's kind of difficult. Lee, known largely for her comedic supporting roles in shows like Girls and Russian Doll, says she'd been longing to play such an emotionally complex character as Nora for years. And to do that with Celine Song, I mean, I think I'm still wrapping my mind around how transformed I feel by the experience. Kim Yutani, director of programming at the Sundance Film Festival, where Past Lives premiered, 
says the film was met with glowing reviews and a standing ovation. Celine's background as a playwright, I think, really shines through. Not only in the poetic precision of her language, Yutani says, but also... Her ability to work with actors and to get these profound performances, I was just astonished by that. Be honest, did did you cry a little bit when you first watched it? <laughs> I think everybody I know pretty much cried when I saw this film. And if this reporter's being totally honest, he found out how hard it is to read while crying firsthand, right around when the credits started to roll. Alexi Horowitz-Ghazi, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. The owners of a home on Nantucket are filing a multi-million dollar lawsuit against the owners and operators of a neighboring historic hotel that burned down last year. The fire destroyed the Veranda House Hotel and two other buildings. The homeowners are seeking more than $4.6 million in damages. The suit alleges that the hotel's owners and operators did not install an automatic sprinkler system. If you're looking for some detail to counteract today's dreary weather, then you can bask in the memory of last month. The Blue Hill Meteorological Observatory says last month was the sunniest May ever recorded in Boston, with nearly 330 bright sunshine hours. And it was also the fourth sunniest month ever recorded at Blue Hill, which has been keeping records since 1886. At Fenway today, the Red Sox play the Rays. It is 48 degrees in Boston, a high surf advisory is in effect, and tonight a coastal flood advisory takes effect. Some rain likely today and a high around 50 degrees. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Salem State University School of Graduate Studies. Advance your career and become a leader in your profession. SalemState.edu graduate. You know that phrase, strength in numbers? Well, that's how WBUR really works. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. The strength of our journalism comes from combining contributions from tens of thousands of listeners every year. This coming Monday through Thursday, WBUR will have a brief but important fundraiser. The goal? 700 listeners becoming monthly contributors. Be one of them. Help us off to a strong start by giving right now. Just go to WBUR.org. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the NPR Wine Club, where members can explore wines from around the world with stories behind each one and bottles inspired by favorite NPR shows. Available to adults 21 or older, nprwineclub.org. And from Staples, with supplies to get business done no matter where it gets done, from ink and toner cartridges to technology like laptops and networking accessories. More at Staples Stores or staples.com. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. It was just about a year ago that the U.S. was staring down yet another new viral outbreak. Mpox, which was formerly called monkeypox, was spreading fast. Luckily, the outbreak died down by the end of the year. But even though the country has seen very few new cases since, federal health officials are now warning of a possible surge in Mpox cases this summer. NPR's Ping Wong joins us now to tell us more. Welcome to the show. 
Hey, Aisha. So why is there this sudden concern about MPOX again? Well, it started a few weeks ago when a dozen cases showed up in Chicago. That prompted the CDC to send out a health alert to doctors saying, hey, watch out for new cases. This could be coming back. And in the past few weeks, that outbreak in Chicago has grown to over 30 cases. Now, that's still really low compared to last summer, and people who are watching closely say it wasn't a complete surprise. Cases have been cropping up in Europe, but the Chicago cluster does show that MPOX never fully went away here and it could come back this summer. So who exactly is at risk as we look ahead to the summer? Well, most of the cases in the U.S. have been in gay, bisexual, other men who have sex with men. Black and Latino men have been especially impacted. They've been making up two-thirds of the cases, and trans women are also at risk. And while MPOX isn't only in these groups, it's been spreading mainly through intimate sexual contact with someone who has it. So with Pride events coming up, this is a time when a lot of people get together, party, there's concern that it could potentially fuel the spread. Here's Dr. Dimitri Daskalakis with the White House MPOX response team. Pride is the opportunity to actually reach out to people and prevent MPOX. When you have everybody gathered, pounce, because you have an opportunity to teach them something. I mean, there was a big push to get people vaccinated last year. How did that go? Well, Aisha, it didn't actually end up reaching a lot of people, and there are huge geographic disparities. So the government estimates that there are 1.7 million people at high risk of MPOX here, and only a quarter of them have gotten fully vaccinated with two doses of the MPOX vaccine. Now, a lot of people who got first doses never came back for a second since case numbers started dropping late last year. And there are now some cases where people who were vaccinated or have recovered from MPOX are getting new infections. So the White House's Daskalakis says the message to the communities at risk is to be aware. If you got a funny rash, it could be MPOX. So go get tested. We're in a completely different horizon with our testing than we were a year ago. So testing is plentiful. And last year around this time, there were 6,000 tests available each week, and now there's 80,000. You mentioned geographic disparities. Like, like what was going on there? So because of the difference in vaccination rates, there are geographic disparities, as you mentioned. So some places are at risk of large sustained outbreaks that could last for months, according to the CDC. These are cities like Memphis, Jacksonville, Florida, Cincinnati, Houston, Dallas. These are all in places with low vaccination rates. But other cities like San Francisco, New York, Washington, D.C. have high vaccination rates. So if MPOX reappears in these places, it's more likely to be quickly contained. Daskalakis says that there's basically a storm brewing and there are possible outbreaks of MPOX on the horizon, but there are also ways to limit the impacts of that storm through vaccination and awareness. That's NPR's Ping Wong. Thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Dominican composer Yasser Tejeda is a musical innovator who has mastered the distinct traditions of his home country. He expands on those sounds by including jazz, rock, and his own personal twist. Later today on All Things Considered, Latinos Felix Contreras takes us on a musical journey with one of his favorite artists. Tune in by telling your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. Immigrants have long been the backbone 
backbone of restaurant kitchens. Now they're winning recognition at the highest levels of the U.S. culinary industry. The James Beard Awards for chefs and restaurants, the so-called Oscars of the food world, are set for Monday. And more than half of the finalists are immigrants or children of immigrants, as NPR's Joel Rose reports. In the kitchen at Kalea in Philadelphia, Chef Nok Chutatip Santarana shows off the newest item on the menu, dumplings shaped like little birds. The beak made with pepper and the filling made with cod, caramelized cod. The filling starts with steamed codfish that's pounded into a paste with palm sugar, garlic, shallot, radish, and cilantro. Santarana can trace the flavors on her menu all the way back to her childhood in southern Thailand. I grew up helping my mom making curry paste to sell in her little shop in the market. So I knew all that recipe by heart. Santarinan did not know exactly how diners would react when she opened Kalea four years ago with her uncompromising approach to the flavors and the heat of Southern Thai cooking. But the restaurant has thrived, and Santarinan has been nominated three times for an award from the James Beard Foundation. I know my food is good. Once we present it with authenticity, just like being true to yourself and the flavors, I think people would feel the honesty about it. Immigrants have always been well represented in the James Beard Awards, but not like this year. Immigrants and children of immigrants from all over the globe make up a majority of the finalists in the chef and restaurant categories. There are at least two explanations for this. To some extent, it's a reflection of how the awards themselves are changing. The James Beard Foundation canceled the awards in 2020, officially because of the pandemic, but also reportedly because of concerns about a lack of diversity among the top vote-getters. When the awards returned last year, they looked very different. We refocused on what is the purpose of these awards. It's to award excellence, and excellence can look like anything, right? Dawn Padmore is the vice president of awards at the James Beard Foundation. She says the mission of the awards has shifted, adding a focus on racial and gender equity and sustainability. And the voting process has changed, too, with a broader mix of voices. Still, Padmore thinks there's another explanation for why immigrant chefs from beyond Europe are doing so well, the food. There's an appetite, I think, in terms of consumers to try these different kinds of cuisines. And I also think that a lot of chefs maybe the younger generation feel like they can just express their culture, their background in a more direct manner. I grew up mostly in Senegal, West Africa, and it was there I learned about you know, my culture and my cuisine. Serene Mabe was born in Harlem, but spent much of his childhood in Senegal. He's nominated for Best Emerging Chef at his restaurant Dakar Nola in New Orleans. Mabe says he's glad to see more recognition for immigrant chefs, particularly from Africa. People cannot deny our existence. You know, it's great that it's happening now, but I think that it should have been happening for years. It's not just big coastal cities and foodie destinations where immigrant chefs are thriving. The James Beard Award finalists this year include a Laotian restaurant in Oklahoma City, a Lebanese chef in Salt Lake City, and a Peruvian restaurant in West Hartford, Connecticut. Our food is traditional, and they can have a little bit of brew here in Connecticut. Macarena Ludena is the head chef at Cora Cora. Her parents opened the restaurant in 2011 and named it after the town in the mountains of Peru where they had lived. Ludena says it's still hard to get the right ingredients in New England. It's called ají amarillo and ají panca. It's the kind of chili peppers that we need to start our cooking. So we don't have the spices. It's not going to be authentic Peruvian food. 
Now this restaurant in a former McDonald's is famous for its ceviche and lomo saltado, proof that immigrants are still changing what America eats. Joel Rose, NPR News. In 2021, TikTok got obsessed with sorority rush at the University of Alabama. The week-long process matches potential new members with Greek organizations on campus through a series of parties. The craze inspired filmmaker Rachel Fleet to make a documentary that dove a little deeper into the rules and secrecy of sorority life, as well as young women's search for belonging. Being in a sorority will kind of help me figure out who I want to be, help me be surrounded by people that will always have my back no matter what. The film is called Bama Rush, and director and executive producer Rachel Fleet joins us now. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. What drew you to Sorority Rush initially? All the way back in 2018 during the Me Too movement, I started to think about what it would be like to be a young woman in a sorority during what we had called the age of consent. I really wanted to explore sorority life because I I felt like it was going to be a lightning rod to talk about all of these other things that young women face, like um, body image and sexual assault and racism, classism. I can go on and on and on. It just felt like it was ripe with fodder. Looking at what you saw on TikTok, which is very stylized, and then what you saw when you were actually talking to these women, what did you see that was different than what people were seeing and following on TikTok? This idea just resonated immediately, and it was this very strong message of, I just want to belong. I just want to make friends. I want to feel like I'm part of something. You're talking to these young girls who are talking about why they want to join the sororities. They, they want to belong. They're also being you know very critical of themselves. But then you turn the camera on yourself, and then to tell such a personal story, you talk about how... You have alopecia, so you you don't have hair, and so you would wear wigs for years and years and years because you didn't want people to know that you didn't have hair. It was extremely emotional, but it was it was necessary. I was asking these young women to be so vulnerable and honest with me in this film, then I would have to do the same thing. And I definitely shed some skin by continuing to explore the ways in which I could sort of weave my story into the film. In the film, you do make a a connection between what you were doing as far as wearing the wig and the rush. Talk to me about that, how rushing in your life, the connection that you found. Yeah, so the word that comes to mind is pageantry. After watching the outfits of the day, TikTok videos over and over, I saw so much um, similarity because it's like you're doing your hair every day, you're doing your makeup, you're putting your outfit on. And, you know, I spent 14 years like putting a wig on and putting on an outfit that I thought was like the right outfit to fit in at school. Mm. One thing that I did not know about until I started watching this documentary is this idea of the machine. 
I also had no idea what the machine was until I went to Tuscaloosa. And the machine is a not-so-secret society. It is comprised of fraternity men and sorority women. They meet secretly in a basement at the Kappa Alpha House, it's alleged, where they sort of control and dominate the student government. The result is that the Greek system, students that are involved in the Greek system, have access to the best things on campus because what the machine does is it it forces the fraternity and sorority kids to vote in a certain way so that the machine is in control. Everything from scholarships and other resources to the best football seats. Do you believe it was, quote-unquote, the machine that was behind the resistance to your film because people were online saying, you know, women shouldn't speak with you, Like, do you think the machine was behind that? You know, I can't prove anything, but I faced so much resistance in initially making this film. I contacted hundreds and hundreds of women. Um, We received so many emails back saying that they were not allowed to talk to us. It seems like there's a tradition of silence. I would have loved to have made this film with some participation from the sorority system at the University of Alabama or from the National Pan-Hellenic Conference, but they didn't want to participate. There's another part of this, and obviously at the University of Alabama and you know throughout this country, but definitely there, there's the issue of, of race. Ten years ago, this fall, the University of Alabama's student newspaper, The Crimson White, reported that the Greek system at that time remained almost entirely white. What did you find as you talked to students about race in sorority life? The sorority system at the University of Alabama was formally desegregated in 2013. So before that, it was segregated. And by formally, I mean like they made a press announcement. There's an incredible tradition of Divine Nine fraternities and sororities at the University of Alabama. The Divine Nine is is the black sororities and fraternities, right? Exactly. You know, I, I talked to a bunch of different sorority women from the D9 sororities, and it was very clear that this film had to focus on the historically white sororities. And there were two incredible mixed-race young women in my film, Ryan and Michaela. And so race became a part of the story with their stories because it all went back to this idea of belonging. And Michaela and Ryan both really lay out their experiences of being mixed-race and trying to rush or being a part of a historically white sorority. Um, where there's very few women of color. Did did you learn something about the rush process that really surprised you? The biggest surprise for me is when I went down there, I had this like ultimate sort of feeling in my heart that these young women were just like me. And so I was surprised. I, I, I say this also in the film, this beautiful blonde woman, Katie, she's telling me how much she struggles and how much she compares herself to the other young women. And it would have been so great to know at 16 that like the really pretty girls at school were also struggling the way that I was struggling. It was surprising, honestly, because when you look at the exterior of someone, you just make this assumption that they're, they've got it made. And it's never, ever true. 
That's filmmaker Rachel Fleet. Her new documentary, Bama Rush, is out now. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me, Aisha. It was my pleasure. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. From Indeed, a hiring platform for helping businesses of all sizes attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. Next at 10 o'clock, it's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me here on 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Start your Monday with Rupa Shinoy and WBUR. You'll hear about efforts to create more affordable housing in Massachusetts. Proponents of prefabricated units say they're a faster and cheaper alternative to traditional construction. That's tomorrow morning here on 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BMW. The BMW i4 has a range of up to 301 miles. It's 100% electric and 100% BMW. When Congress voted to raise the debt ceiling, they also greenlit other projects, like the controversial Mountain Valley Pipeline that will pipe gas hundreds of miles from West Virginia to Virginia. After Many, many attempts in the court to shut the entire thing down. It's time to bring it to a close. I'm Eric Deggins. What could be the impact of the pipeline and how did it get approved? That's on the next All Things Considered from NPR News. Today at 5 on 90.9 WBUR. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH-Hisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.